passage in uh, 2 Corinthians this morning. I thought I was going to cover a lot more material, and then the men's retreat happened, so uh, good news for you. We're going to probably not try to cover as much as I would have, but um, we only have six Sundays left before Advent begins, by the way. We should be at 2 Corinthians around chapter 7 by then. But on the surface, the rest of uh, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians um, can seem a little bit underwhelming when you just read it quickly. Uh, You know, I was thinking about it as I wrestled with this passage this week. It's like, yeah, this is probably not one that I'd ever would have chosen to preach on in Bible college. Um, It's just not one that that where the, it just pops right up, the the, the significance of what we're talking about. At least that was my experience this week. Um, I'm going to reference some help that I, I received from one scholar. But as you read the rest of this chapter, it, you know, you really feel like, well, we're reading an argument from, you know, 20 centuries ago where there's this guy that's an apostle and a lot of people weren't taking him seriously and he's trying to defend that he really is an apostle. And uh, that is true. That's in the passage. But uh, as I hinted at last week, in this letter, Paul ends up teaching a lot of things to us that um, are not just teachings about being an apostle, but they're about being a representative of Christ in, in any capacity. And, and it's not just all about what it takes to be an apostle or why it's important to be an apostle, but just about being a, a spokesperson, um, anybody in ministry uh, at all. We're going to find some things that are really important. Last week, I talked about ownership and pointed out in the early verses of chapter 1 that Paul's clear to say that this was God's church. Remember me saying that? You know, Charles Spurgeon never had a church. Nobody goes to John Blackman's church. We're not going to use that phrase anymore anyway. They don't go to worship at John Blackman's church. It's God's church. Well, I think the rest of this chapter is going to help all of us understand. It's interesting on a day when we're trying to encourage as many people as possible to to volunteer, to be involved in ministry, that it's not only God's church, it's, it's God's ministry. And hopefully we'll be able to tease out a little bit. So, so Paul, uh, he, you know, he does introduce some important things about the connection between the character and integrity of an apostle, and, uh, but it's relevant in the connection between the character and integrity of anybody that shares the gospel because there's a real connection between the person and the message that they're proclaiming. The problem Paul's addressing is, is credibility. And you're going to read, as, as we read this, it's like, really, this made it in? This made it into this letter? This made it into the Bible? Paul changed his travel plans, and they're all upset about it? And we're going to read about this this morning? You know, it can sound a little bit petty when you just read through it quickly. Like, you know, well, you said you're going to be home by 5, and now it's 7.30, and, you know, what's going on? But there's something, it's, this is just a symptom of the lack of trust that they have in him. And we're going to see how Paul kind of handles this. Uh, when Paul answers their slander, he's revealing something that he reveals that he does believe that what they think about him does matter. What they think about him does matter. It does, it matters because it ends up having an effect on something that matters far more than him. And it's this message that he's been entrusted with and called to, to pass on. As we're just getting into a conversation about the Great Commission, we should be able to connect for sure that this really is also all about us as well. Um, 
I read this week that uh, in the time period when Paul's writing this letter, that there were many regulations concerning the people that taught the Torah, God's law, an official teacher of God's word. Um, there, was, uh, there were a lot of regulations, and one was that a teacher must never promise anything to a class which he could not or would not do. Um, because the, the scholar William Barclay that was writing this says, to do so would be to accustom the class to falsehood. Um, I, I would paraphrase that as to normalize lying. So this was a regulation. If you're going to teach God's law, you, you, you need to take it seriously. And that's a warning not only for any of us that teach the Bible or teach Sunday school or lead in a small group. Um, I think that's a, a warning, that's a great warning for parents as well. He goes on to write, promises should not be lightly given. If they're lightly given, they're lightly broken. And so Paul is in, concerned about this connection between his reputation and character and this message that, that he preaches. Uh, another thing that I want to uh, avoid this morning is to, I want us to hear Paul's words about integrity and I want us to make sure we're not thinking he's only talking about the qualifications of an apostle or a bishop or something like that. It's a kind of a bad habit I was um, kind of brought up uh, to, to realize by a speaker I heard once where people jump into the Bible and even sections like the pastoral epistles and they look at these, these roles and offices and jobs and, and so, you know, where, where do you find what the qualifications for an elder are and where are the qualifications for a deacon and we file them off as if that's all they are. Well, if you decide you want to be an elder, then you need to have all these characteristics and if you want to be a deacon, this is what you should be like. And, and the, the man I heard speaking said, these are just descriptions of a full-grown, mature Christian. And Paul's just saying, if you're going to put somebody in a, in a position, they, they actually need to be a, a full-grown, mature Christian. So we can even look at those passages and learn things about what, what's the vision and the calling for us. Um, you know, leaders, in Paul's mind, they're not just like spiritual green berets or Navy SEALs. They're just full-grown, mature Christians. And Paul's going to give us a little picture of what that looks like from his own testimony in this passage. So let me, let me read it. I know that's a long introduction, and uh, let's get rolling here down in verse 12. Um, you know, even my translation says, Paul's change of plans, that's the heading. We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. Our letters have been straightforward. There's nothing hidden between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Then, on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, you will be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice, first on my way to Macedonia and again when I returned from Macedonia. Then you could send me on my way to Judea. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think that I make my plans carelessly? Do you think that I'm like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. 
He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm in Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised us. Now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy for it is by your own faith that you will stand firm. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit, for, I, for if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I've grieved. That's why I wrote you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears, I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Paul talks about conscience a lot. Um, and for someone who also teaches and writes a lot in his letters about humility, he even uses the word boasting often in his letters. Um, let me give you some examples about conscience. In his letters that we call uh, the pastoral epistles, he says things that reveal um, that he considers a good conscience to be foundational to being able to serve God credibly. Um, he urged Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 to operate out of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In 1 Timothy 1, he wrote that leaders must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and a sincere faith. I guess that was in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, he made Claims that sound to a lot of us kind of audacious. He says things like, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And uh, he says he stood before the powerful Sanhedrin. He was being accused of heresy and dividing uh, the Jewish people and the, the, faith of, the faith of the Jews. And he stood before them and said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And that's in Acts 23. In Acts 24, he's standing before a powerful governor. And he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You know, he's, he reveals a little bit when he says, I take pains to have a clear conscience. It makes you realize that it's, it's plastic. I don't mean plastic by fake. I mean, it's, it's moldable, changeable. It can be formed. And Paul's taking great pains to form his conscience and live by them. And uh, if we look uh, and see there's this thick slice of conscience between two slices of boasting. He, he talks about, you know, I, I can say with confidence, your translation might say boast that we've lived a God-given life and holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. And then later on he says, someday when all of this is done and we've gotten through this painful thing we're working through here, you're going to be able to boast in what God's done in your life. So there's this vision and confidence and what God's doing. And in, in between, there's, 
There's, there's this whole conscience idea. Um, in verse 15 to 22, I, I'm going to come back and go over some of this stuff in more detail for sure. We, we get the idea, and we can kind of quickly pull out, if you think about who he is, he is the Apostle Paul. Um, despite his confidence and his boasting in what he's confident God's going to do through him and in their lives, he's not too proud to explain himself. He's not too proud to explain himself. We, I don't have to explain myself to you is, is kind of a, a fallen, it's how our fallen culture operates. That's actually something we admire. We, we kind of hold them up as heroes and role models. I don't have to explain myself to anybody. I don't have to explain myself to you. And Paul's saying, you know what, somebody that's carrying, we, we talk, he talks some elsewhere about this treasure in earthen jars that carries this should be concerned about what others think of them and shouldn't be too proud to explain themselves. Paul's life and ministry are about something much greater than Paul. So he submits to certain constraints that form his leadership. Now, this is an idea. I brought the book just so I could show you a little commentary by somebody who just passed away in 2020, a scholar, Derek Prime. And he opened my eyes to this concept of Paul's leadership and the power of his ministry was dependent upon constraints. How countercultural is that? You know, you, re you, read, you, know you, you read humorous things like, you know, when I was a kid, I told myself, when I'm a grown-up, I'm not going to bed at 9 o'clock at night. I'm going to stay up as late as I want. And then you become a grown-up, and you decide 9 o'clock is as late as I want to stay up. You know, you have these constraints as a grown-up and adult. You, you can't just stay up as late as you want. You've got things that you're responsible for and things you need to do. And, and that Paul's going to introduce some ideas here of how constraints are actually things that form his leadership. It's an interesting paradox that a person's authority is connected to what he submits to. So what are these constraints? The first one is, is character. Christian character constrains. It limits your options. You don't have, the, we don't have, this thing that's reputation or integrity. We don't have the creative license with the gospel to separate the, the reputation we have from the good name and character of the God who represent and to whom we must one day answer. You know, you can get that just from Paul's like, okay, you're concerned about my travel plans. I'm, I'm going to explain myself to you. Do, do you think that I'm a person whose word you can't count on? Well, well let me assure you, that's, that's not the case. Um, the final assurance of all character, or not the final assurance, the final assessment of all character and conduct you're going to see is in verse 14. And that's judgment day. Uh, the second restraint, and I'm going to come back to these, so I'm not going to go through them this fast. Second constraint is in how we carry on our lives as Christians is who God is. That's a constraint. We, we've come here to worship. I've been emphasizing that this morning. And our knowledge of who this God is, we, we learned some things from Isaiah 40 just Wednesday night about who is this God that we worship. The, the, the identity and how God has revealed himself to us, that creates restraints upon our lives. 
who God is. He, he, God knew that, Paul knew that the God he taught about was holy and sincere and faithful. And he uses all those adjectives to describe a life of Christian character. He uses all those adjectives. Remember, kids, adjectives are words we use that really describe things. Handy words to carry around. I grew up with those little memory things. And here are these adjectives from the character of God, and Paul's using them to describe, well, what does Christian character look like? Holy, sincere, faithful. Between 12, verses 12 and 18, you, you look for the words holy, sincere, faithful. Um, my translation says godly sincerity. Others say simplicity. But, uh, you know, a very acceptable word here that's used is holy. It's another name for God's moral perfection. If you think about it, uh, because if I were to give you a Sunday school little pop quiz with fill-in-the-blanks answers or ABC, uh, all of the above, and I said, um, God is limited, we would all say. True, false, Pastor John, you're a heretic. You know, you'll probably choose false or Pastor John, you're a heretic. But in some ways, God's holiness constrains him. He's perfect in his holiness. He always acts within it. Um, I don't want to, like I say, head off into heresy saying God's limited in some ways. But God never acts outside of that one of his characteristics. And we're being called as, as Christians toward the same thing. Um, it, it constrains him, thank goodness, from the possibility of ever deceiving us. And that's what Paul's saying here. No, I haven't deceived you. I'm not yes, no. My yes means yes sometimes, and sometimes it means no. And my no might sound like no sometimes, but really sometimes it means yes. And he's like, no, like God never deceives us. And as a minister of the gospel, my words mean what they say. He's, God is perfectly sincere in all his dealings. That word sincere is a really interesting one. Um, there's a lot of different uh, um, ideas about the, the breadth of what this word meant. Uh, I was always more familiar with a man named Warren Wearsby that was a, a Bible teacher from Dave and my era when we were younger that wrote many books. And I always remember Warren Wearsby's definition that sincere was like two Latin words that meant um, without and wax, these two words. So if somebody's sincere, they're without wax, and you think of um, marble sculptures in the day, and they would sculpt these things, and oh, while well, they're finishing it, you know, nuts, I just chipped that ear off. So they would take a little bit of uh, stone and, and uh, dust, and they would mix it with wax. It's like, it's like a first century auto body bondo. You know, they can, they can mix this stuff up and blend it in, and it looks like the sculpture's perfect, and then you got it out in the back in the garden and the sun comes out and, you know, Apollos' ear falls off or something like that because it had wax in it. It wasn't, it wasn't legit. It wasn't solid. Well, that, that sun, it's, it's also the meaning here in this word is what something is under the light of the sun when it's brought into, when it's come to light. We use that expression, right? Well, things have come to light since then. And something that's sincere is still what it said it was when it's brought out into the light. That's a, a really interesting word. Um, Paul says, remember how we were about you in verse 19. How great it would be if as representatives of the gospel message, we could say with confidence and a clear conscience. Uh, it's so much more than, well, just, you're just going to have to take my word for it. 
Paul's saying, you can, you can remember how we were among you. And you'll remember that you can trust me. And, uh, but then there's this very important spinoff down here in the middle of our passage that I need to mention. Um, and that's where, did you hear where he was saying, you know, my yes is yes and my no is no. And Jesus, God's yes is yes and God's no and no. And then he goes off into this little rabbit trail. And by the way, Jesus is God's yes to every promise God ever made. Have you thought about that? You know, I pretty much land all my prayers. I'll probably do it again at the end of my message with, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text already explained to us that means yes. That means yes. So what does that mean? Does that mean that because we're a Christian, then automatically the answer to every one of our prayers is yes? No, it means this. If God has promised something, and he's promised so many amazing things, through the Old Testament and through his apostles and through Jesus' teaching. And all of those promises are a yes through Jesus. Now you can see why it's important to be able to count on him because most of Jesus' promises are for us life and death. They're things about eternity, things that you need to be sure about. We're continually challenging you here to build your entire life, to make Jesus the center of all life. Well, that better be something that you can count on. And it is. And, and Paul makes that point in this passage, in this little aside. No matter how many promises God has made, they're yes in Christ. And in verse 21, we see the same power that enables, that is, is, uh, enables us to stand firm in Christ. He, he's anointed us, blessed us to be able to do such a thing. He set his seal of ownership on us. He's marked us put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. A third thing that constrains is conscience. I talked a little bit about it already. Conscience. Paul was able to claim that he had a clear conscience. How, how do you develop that? If you look at verse 12, how do you develop a clear conscience? Uh, I looked up online. I want to make sure I got the spelling right. You know, the opposite is unconscionable. Unconscionable. That's an adjective, adjective, that's an adjective that means without a conscience, something unscrupulous, so unfair or unjust that it shocks your conscience. Um, it's frequently used in, in the context of law contracts um, that, are, that are grossly oppressive and unfair. That's just unconscionable that you would, you know, put something together like that. Do you treat your conscience like a valuable gift? You know, or is it a nuisance? A conscience should be treated with uh, great sensitivity. I, I talked earlier that, that it, it's a little bit plastic. It's formable. It's shapeable. So we need to also be careful with it. But we need to feed it. We need to grow it. We need to train it. It, it could be trained with, with, with Scripture. It can be trained with teaching, with discipleship. It can be fortified, formed. We should respect another person's conscience. This is something that Paul teaches about in Romans and other places where sometimes another person's conscience, you, you kind of know or you think you know, they're just way too sensitive about this issue. You know, they have too sensitive a conscience. I, I think we should never mess around with someone else's conscience because, you know, they need to be able to depend on their conscience. They need to treat it carefully. So don't turn yourself into a conscience judge and, and try to shape and mold everybody else's conscience. But pay attention to your own. 
Um, we should be very careful about acting in such a way that harms, that goes against our own conscience, and we should be careful about acting in a way that harms someone else's conscience. And the fourth constraint is, is God's grace or God's wisdom or the way God does things constrains us in our Christian life and in our walk. Um, if our, our actions are supposed to be guided by the grace of God and the wisdom of God, not by the wisdom of the world. We, we know when we're following worldly wisdom, when it's our guide, because we'll start asking ourselves, well, what's in it for me? Well, how's this going to affect me? Well, why should I do that? Where, uh, you know, I, I talked last week a little bit about that whole idea of trials, and rather than ask the why me question, we should be asking the who question. You know, who does God intend the way I'm being fortified from this trial? Who, who does God plan to bless or, or use or help through this trial that I'm going through? Well, I think on, on, on this one, when it comes to, uh, you know, the way God does things, we'll know that we're actually thinking in that way when we start asking, well, what's best for God's people? What's best for the other person in this situation or this conflict I'm in? What will most honor God, the God to whom I owe everything? In verse 13, Paul kind of reminds us that, you know, he didn't have to use uh, a spin or uh, blame shifting or anything because his instructions, his instructions, his actions were in line with God's teaching and God's will and hope. He says, our letters have been straightforward. There's nothing written between the lines, nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Remember my words about leadership descriptions in the Bible not being about a different class of people. So Paul didn't explain all of this just so we can know how uh, an apostle rolled. You know, well, how did an apostle live his life? And, you know, that's for them. I think we need to really kind of take a look at what's about us. What, what is there here for us? If, if leaders are merely full-grown, mature Christians... There are different roles and things like that. But, but essentially, what's a mature Christian? When I was a young youth pastor, I remember taking some training. I think Dave Pepiot probably did the same, same training. At one point, you, you needed to sit down and, and write out a, it was called a DDS, a description of a discipled student. And you had a bunch of 20-year-olds in there just winging stuff and trying to write things down. And the idea is you had this 13-year-old kid in your youth group, and after they've endured four years of your ministry, what do you want them to be? What, what are the things you want them to have? And, and it was an exercise in ignorance probably, and we're all just making stuff up because you've got to fill out this form. And you know what? Paul's teaching in the pastoral epistles, if I only knew it, would have saved me so much time. Great cheat notes right there. Here's what a discipled person looks like. Go, go take a look at them later. I think that's true here in, in, this, in this story as well. Paul provides us insights about what it means to live with integrity. What does it mean to live with integrity? Verse 14, for one, reminds us that to live with integrity means to live with judgment in view. It means to live with judgment day in view. To, to, to realize that that's a real thing. And, and to live our lives in, in light of it. Uh, I had an old professor that gave us all kinds of tests because he lived by this adage. We got sick of hearing it all the time. Um, he would say, people don't do what you expect. They do what you inspect. And a less popular promise of God. Remember I said all God's promises are yes in Jesus? 
Judgment Day is a promise of God. God promised that eventually justice will be, there, there will be justice in the world. We're going to hear about heinous acts of injustice going on in, in a war probably in the next while. But ultimately all justice will be done one day on Judgment Day. Living a life of integrity lives. It, 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 there's this great tomorrow and we should factor that into all of our todays. That's part of integrity. We, we should conduct our relationship with the marks of this holiness, sincerity, and faithfulness that are from God, verse 12. You can look at every one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's just holiness growing out for the nourishment of others. Um, that, that we should conduct our relationships with the marks of holiness. Uh, you could think of the fruits of the Spirit in that way. They give us beautiful pictures to connect it with. Um, integrity is going to mean that our conscience needs training and exercise and discipline, but it's a friend when it's listened to. And then finally, God's wisdom, that revelation of right and wrong and not the world's wisdom. Uh, you know, Paul said, I didn't make a second painful visit because of the grace of God. Uh, that, that's what stopped me from coming for that second visit. Let me close this morning with this quotation from my uh, new friend, Mr. Prime, who just passed away in 2020. He wrote this, The great lesson that arises from this passage is that our aim in our conduct towards one another and towards the unbelieving world is to reflect God's character. Although we know it's not fully attainable, we're to follow our Savior's direction, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect from the Gospel of Matthew. How is God perfect? Well, God's perfect in holiness, He's perfect in sincerity, and He's perfect in faithfulness, verses 12 and 18. He wrote this, he said, I appreciated this, he said, we can't all be gifted and outstandingly able. We can't all be gifted and outstandingly able. By the grace of God, however, we may all, we may all. That's, that's not saying it might happen. He's saying it can happen. That, that's what may means. And it's like it's a great news that you may become this. He says, we may all be men and women of integrity. God's promises in Jesus assure us of that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word and something as simple as the Apostle Paul having to justify himself because he changed his travel plans can crack open to us what real integrity and Christian character looks like and help us to understand that if we want to be people involved in your great commission, that we need to carry ourselves as ambassadors of the God that we serve and who you've revealed yourself to be. We pray for the grace of Jesus and to enable us to do that. And in his name we pray, amen. So I'm going to do something right now that uh, you're not really going to hear uh, very many uh, preachers say often. In a sermon, I want you to take your cell phones out and make sure they're on.
How's that for a change? Get your cell phone out if you have one with you. And what I'd like you to do is uh, open up your camera. I just finally realized after all these years, I you can make a setting where I just push the button and my camera opens up. And then once you open your camera, I want you to zoom it out as, like, as wide, as close of a zoom as you can. So if you got your phone out. Now, now if you're a young person that doesn't have a cell phone, you might want to be thinking, why are my parents so cruel? Haven't they heard about things like human rights and the basic necessities of life? But that's another sermon. Anyway, if you have your cell phone with you and you got it completely zoomed out, you know, take, take a look around and, and, and try, to, try to see what's going on and, and uh, you know, take a look around at things. And you realize, you know, with this, if, imagine, I want you to imagine my next assignment was you had to watch the entire service from this perspective. Like if it was me... It's like, oh, my notes, I can barely read them. I can see like one letter at a time. And not only that, I'm getting motion sick because, you know, when you're zoomed in at this point, right, it's so, so tippy. Oh, I, Kath, Bob's still awake. Okay, that's good. So, you know, imagine if you had to live, if you had to go through the entire service with that kind of a perspective, zoomed in that close, if you have a very long memory, uh, when we stopped our Second Corinthians series just before Advent started, that's how long it's been, Paul's last words at the end of chapter 4 were, we fix our eyes, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's talking about perspective. My little cell phone uh, experiment there, for those of you that tried it out, was, was about perspective. And perspective is so crucial. And the passage that we're going to look at over the next two Sundays is going to ask us to stop zooming in on the immediate, the world right in front of us, as if that was everything. As if that was all there was to be seen. Our, our perspective as believers needs a focus that goes beyond the here and now and includes the then and there. But before I do, I want to make some uh, qualifying points. And just an advance warning, if, if you're a little tired this morning and you're like, when's John going to actually get to the passage? Like, this is seeming like this is going to be really long. Today is almost all introduction. We'll spend a lot more time next week in the passage. But I just felt this was such a complicated passage. I, we really needed to talk about some things in advance. Paul is right in the middle of this letter, 2 Corinthians. By the way, um, we once posted uh, on the Bible Project, a little 2 Corinthians video. might be great to watch that this week since it's been a month since you've been in this passage and watch that summary. There's a picture of it in our hallway back there. Um, that would be a great thing to do. But Paul's in the middle of this long kind of discussion, really justifying his own existence. Um, the problem that he had with his church in Corinth is that they were evaluating him by the wrong perspective. They were zoomed in on all the wrong things, and as a result, they were considering Paul to be a failure and somebody they really didn't need to pay attention to. According to their focused-on-the-scene perspective, the hardships and difficulties and suffering that was going on in the lives, not only of Paul, but all Team Paul, the leaders that he was traveling with, the, the lousy life they were having was proof that they were doing something wrong. 
Paul, you got him. That's the old Dr. Phil question, right? Like, how's that working out for you? Well, Paul's talk about Christ and uh, being a Christ follower, he just seemed to bring him nothing but trouble and suffering and uh, whippings and all of that. And they're like, Paul, you must be doing something wrong. Paul argued in chapter 4, no, no, far from it. That's actually proof that we're on the right track. So it was Scott that preached on that passage on short-term notice, and that has that famous line about jars of clay, that we're just jars of clay. Well, Paul, when Saul says we, he means he and his team. They're just jars of clay, this incredible treasure is inside the jar. The, what's really important is the message inside. And, and people were preferring these fancy pots, the fine china of these other leaders that they were seeing that seemed to have it all together. They were better public speakers than Paul was. They didn't seem to be suffering the way Paul was. They must be the real deal. Paul says, no, our sufferings are evidence that we're the real deal. You see, Jesus obeyed to the death. And we as his servants, we're obeying and serving and ministering to the death. And uh, it's all about God's glory and not ours. And oh, by the way, you people, the Corinthian people he's writing to, you're proof that we're on to something real here. Because we started this church. You're, you're God's blessing. You're, you're the glory in our ministry, not some blessing upon us and our bodies. So that's where Paul was. And then now he's going to take a little bit of a time out in this argument, and he's going to remind those people in Corinth, and if we're listening, all of us in this room here, that that cruciform path, that path of living like Jesus and following God like Jesus did, is the calling of every believer. That's the calling of every believer. But the good news is, there's more to all of this. There's more than just the temporary hardships and sufferings and persecutions that come with being a faithful Christ follower in this fallen world. No matter how hard they are, there's way more to all of this than just the temporary and momentary struggles. Another thing in this passage we're going to look at, it's chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, if you want to turn to it in your Bible. Uh, it does provide some comfort to us. Um, partial but really important comfort uh, where we can answer the questions that sometimes our children ask us and sometimes our own hearts ask us of what actually happens to a believer when they die faithful in Christ Paul gives us some answers to those questions in this passage what happens what does happen to a believer when they die but before I even get to the passage um, think about this idea it's 2,000 years plus since Paul wrote the paragraph we're going to read, the first 10 verses of chapter 5. A paragraph that has important information about the afterlife for believers. Even though Paul wrote this passage more than 2,000 years ago, sadly, there's still far too much confusion about what happens to a believer when they die. How do I know that? Because we hear that confusion sometimes in conversations over little tiny sandwiches down in the church basement after a funeral, or sometimes in really squishy, kind of strange eulogies. Eulogies can really go sideways in a funeral service. If you're a pastor, you, you know that can happen. And what you find in people's language is it seems to be way, people have this way more clarity and confidence and absolutely know exactly what's happening. Like they have it at a level far more than even the Bible gives us. That's one thing, and they seem to skip a whole lot of 
stages or time or, or events or state of being that our, our Bibles do talk about. Uh, you know, we'll get into that a little bit. We, we, you'll find that, uh, because Paul's going to talk about an A, B, and C scenario, in case I forget to give you those terms. Like, A, we're living it right now. This is A. Then there's this B, which is uh, theologians call it the intermediate state. The intermediate state. And then there's C, which is like the big excitement is when we get a resurrection body. A, B, and C. But our language tends to go straight from A to C. So I was at a funeral uh, just in the last couple of years of a girl from my old youth group who lived to be about 42 years of age, wheel-bound, wheelchair-bound her entire life. Just one of those things where she's just born breech. That's all that happened to her. And as a result of those, those seconds in the delivery room, she was paralyzed from the waist down her entire life. So in the eulogies and the talk, everybody talked about Karen has, now she knows what it's like to run and she's leaping and jumping and all of that. I believe that's a, a thing for her, but that's C. Paul's going to talk a little bit about B, the in-between in her passage. I'll clarify that a little bit more in our, in our uh, discussion. Uh, I got a speculation alert for you here, too. It's most likely that when Paul's writing this passage, definitely, I'm going to point out when he writes, wrote some earlier ones in the New Testament, Paul likely believes in his own head as he's got putting pen to parchment here that he's probably not going to die before he gets his resurrection body. Paul probably believes that. The, the thought seems to be, because like we're going to look at a passage in Thessalonians, that whole church seemed to think, well, you know, Jesus is coming back before any of us die, so they're just kind of waiting around for that to happen. And Paul's like, no, you, you know, stay busy in the meantime. Um, Paul seems to have a worldview that he probably won't die before he gets this new body. But he's going to talk about this in-between stage, and think about that. 2,000 years, every single Christian ever that's died and belief in Christ is in this B situation between A and C. Paul probably thinks he's going to be one of those in the wink of an eye makeovers. He knows that people have died as believers. And, and he's gonna, we're going to read a line where he's going to teach that it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that doesn't mean that Paul completely can picture exactly what that state is like. Um, and when we hear that Paul would rather be at point B than in point A, that doesn't mean he wouldn't even more rather go straight from A to C. You know, and we're going to talk a little bit about why that would be the truth. So there's life, there's this intermediate state, and there's a resurrection. And why is all this so important and what's Paul got to push back against in this passage is that a lot of people he's writing to didn't really care about the resurrection very much. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll refer to that this morning. Because there's this worldview that's still prevalent to this day and age that we're just like these spirits inside this meat machine that we're driving around in. And it's this major promotion to finally shed this mortal coil and then just float off into the universe as this set free from a trap cage inner spiritual being floating around. In their minds, that's the big promotion. Paul's worldview and the Bible's teaching is far more inclusive and connected with the body. 
So, so the body is not in and of itself this terrible thing. We're going to read words in our passage that where Paul's going to acknowledge, well, there is this earthly body and there is this inner spiritual person, a soul. There's a body and a soul, but we tend to really separate those two. Whereas in the Hebrew and Christian understanding, they're far more connected. They're far more, far more connected. So, so this, this body, who I am as a person, the, the guy you're looking at right now, that, that really is me, as well as my inner being. Those are both really me. You know, when Andrew is working on somebody in the clinic, he's not just working on a costume or something completely separated from that human being. They're connected. And, and our future is also very connected. We're going we're gonna to see that in our passage. So let me keep going. I remember I told you this is a very long introduction. Um, our future, um, our, our spiritual person is not more us than our bodies are. Like, there's a whole lot of talk about your real true inner self. And it, a, lot, you know, a lot of crazy thinking out there. That's something that you just decide on your own. You make it up all on your own. And it's completely separated from this body you're in. No. We're people. We're our embodied spirits, body and soul. All that to build up that for Paul, this idea of not being in a body. Remember this point B in between? That's tense for him. We, we skip over it because we say, well, it's better to be with the Lord than here because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that doesn't mean Paul's excited about spirit and body being separated, and he's trying to give us confidence here about what's going on in that thing. Think about it as, well, that's like his second choice of three options. It's, it's not his first choice when we read absent from the body, present with the Lord. If he could... Have his druthers, I would say, from everything I've been thinking about that Paul says about the afterlife, he would have rather gone straight from A to C. Um, I can't speak for what he thinks now because he's in, a, he's in a situation that I have no idea what it's like. So think about that again. I want you to think back on this. We have no way, there's zero chance that we could ever estimate how many Christians have lived and died since Paul wrote this passage. I don't know how many people have come to faith in Christ since Jesus rose from the dead. Number-crunching scientists, they tell me, uh, Google, I mean, tells me that there have been about 31.6 billion human beings on the planet since the days of Christ. So out of those 31.6 billion people that have lived on this planet in the last 2023-ish years, 24-ish years, I don't know how many of them became believers and became absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, I, but there are a lot of people, and every single one of them have gone through the, are in this intermediate state. It's amazing. So Paul's writing this, and he's writing then, well, some of us are going to be alive. Some of us, obviously, some of us have already died, but don't worry about them. They're going to get a new body as well, and we're all going to get new bodies. I don't think Paul had any idea that every Christian in the entire known world when he was alive would be going through this plan B. Not only that, every Christian that's ever been alive and died from the time Paul wrote this until today have also gone through this mysterious, where's it at, intermediate state. Uh, just, just a little bit because we kind of jump all over these things and we don't realize how kind of mind-blowing that is. 
You won't really appreciate what he's saying in verses 1 to 10 unless you too are troubled by the idea of not being connected body and soul. Paul's going to throw all kinds of pictures in our passage about tents and houses, being naked or clothed, swallowed up by life rather than swallowed up by death, temporary and permanent, and you won't really understand them the way that Paul wants you to grasp and think about it. And again, relax, we're just kicking off this passage today. But there's, there's comparisons like body, soul, death, life, home and away, faith, works, faith and sight, confidence and accountability. That's in this passage. You know, another really question people struggle with and have all kinds of opinions, 80% of those are probably from outside of Scripture, will Christians ever face judgment on the last day? Well, our passage here today says yes. Uh, and, and that's something that we want to look at next week, you know, because um, in the present generation of um, Christian books and ministry, I think people have done a, a, in some ways a remarkable job of helping people understand a very important truth and trying to encourage people to see themselves the way God sees them. And you can look at all kinds of passages and we think about the idea that God sees me in Christ as his beloved son. There's very important doctrines that we believe, like the imputed righteousness of Christ, that Jesus' righteousness is what I have my hope in to, to be saved. And so it's like, well, what's with this passage then? Like, if I, God sees me already as his beloved son, that sounds like he's pretty pleased. And he imputed the righteousness of Christ on me? I must look pretty pleasing with that on. Well, why is there this talk here that I'm going to be judged for the good and the bad that I've done in this body here on this earth? So we're going to struggle with that a little bit this week and into next week. Um, I think it's time we just read the passage. Chapter, I'm going to start in verse eight, 18 of chapter 4. <clears throat> so, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, just going to check. I want to make sure you're reading the same translation I am. Um, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. And the older we get, the more groaning and sighing we do. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this and to guarantee he has given us by his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. 
For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. It's a great passage to turn to quick. When someone, oh, do you think Christians are going to be judged someday? Well, 510 says, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. Yes. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. Um, we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. I read something last week uh, in my studies that um, in Spain's history, we're talking pre-1400s, there was a Latin slogan that appeared on uh, world maps. If you looked up a world map, you would see um, printed off to the uh, west of the Strait of Gibraltar, that's a zoom in and a, a, you know, out there in what we now know as the Atlantic Ocean, there was this slogan in Latin, ne plus ultra, no more beyond. That was the signs. If you went out through the Straits of Gibraltar, kind of Spain owned the world at this time, so they basically said, once you leave what we own, there's no more. And then this Columbus guy goes on a trip and comes back, and it's like, oh! So like their coins and all their signs and maps all got changed around where they said, more beyond. <laughs> like, that's a major paradigm shift, isn't it? And Paul's just given us a geography lesson in our passage. There's more beyond. There's more beyond for the Christian. Um, we, we have to always keep that in perspective. Um, to, to live this life as if there's nothing more beyond deforms your life. It's deforming even for a Christian to live their life as if this is all there is. And then, or also that anything we do here has nothing to do with the next life. Verses 1 to 10 are an attempt to explain the unexplainable, the promised resurrected life of believers. Teaching, Christian teaching all through the New Testament is that just as Jesus was raised with a new physical body, so will every believer receive a body in the like mode to Jesus' body. Uh, these verses are Paul's developed eschatological thought. When, that's Christian lingo. When you hear that word eschatology, it means teaching regarding future things, but mostly it's, it's really meant to talk about end things. The Bible's teaching about end things. Paul describes the second coming of Christ, and he uses this word, the parousia. That's the word of the day. Everybody say parousia. Parousia, the, the second coming. As this time when all believers will receive their spiritual bodies, or our passage translation today said their heavenly bodies. Their heavenly bodies or spiritual bodies is a, probably a better translation. When I think of heavenly bodies, I think of being in buff condition. This is this spiritual body. It's a different kind of body. But when you hear the text say spiritual body, don't think that it's not. It, it's just as tangible as the one you could pinch right now if you wanted to pinch the body that you have right now. So when we hear terms like spiritual body, it doesn't, don't mistake it for not real. 
um, they will be more real than the one you could pinch right now. But he also spoke about the state and location for in-betweeners, we want to call it. And, and these are things that you could, we would call critical and confusing distinctions. They always have been. I don't think I'm going to answer all those questions in the next couple of weeks. If you glance back at the second half of chapter 4 that Scott covered more than a month ago, you'll notice Paul's talking about all of these ideas in the context of his own personal struggles and trials. Remember I said at the beginning it wasn't proof that he was doing it all wrong. But now he kind of moves into this shared hope that we all have as believers of eternity with Christ and then this penultimate hope we have of the future resurrection of the saints, the believers. That's where I talked about at the very beginning of the service. Our big day is still ahead of us. Our best day hasn't happened. We don't have to worry about if our best day already passed us and we missed it. I would have enjoyed that day a lot more if I knew it was the best one I was ever going to have. No, your best day is still ahead of you as a believer. Um, let's jump back into... Uh, this setup, though, today for the and, and think about two other passages that give more context. I'll mostly speak about the first one. Um, and according to Bible experts, this, these words were written earlier than Paul's writing Second Corinthians. Famous ones in First Corinthians, First uh, Thessalonians, chapter four. First Thessalonians, chapter four, reads like this. You'll hear this one often at funerals. And uh, people that are really excited about eschatology, this is one of their favorite passages. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. Here's that same idea, right? So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Here, we usually miss that. That for the people Paul's writing, to be separated body and soul is not an exciting idea for these people. So he's talking about even more than just that they've died, but that they're, they're separated. We, won't, we do not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. I tell you this directly from the Lord. We who, this is where I get the idea that Paul thinks he's still going to be around. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. That word perusia really has a context of presence. Going back to our word of the day, perusia, that's... Used prominently in the passage that I just read. And uh, the church believes that a coming will bring the presence of a supernatural, powerful being who will appear particularly with saving, healing power. But Paul didn't invent the word perusia. It's a new one. It's a word of the day for us. That was a common word in the Roman world when Paul's writing this. People would have grasped a mental picture of what he's talking about. Almost all the time we talk about the perusia, all of our pictures come from this passage. The people that are reading this for the first time, all their pictures would come from this common word in their language. Well, what was this word about? Um, here's a quote from one of my commentaries by Judith Deal. 
Just like a king or an emperor who rode into a subjugated city, that's a city that you've taken. Didn't used to be yours, but a big fight battle happened, now it's yours. So an emperor rides into a subjugated city or province and his second coming, like she's saying, he was probably already there before. Um, a lot of times kings didn't get their hands dirty, but let's pretend he was. On his horse, overtaking the city, winning the battle, then he leaves the city because there's going to be a big parade. There's going to be a coming, a presence. When he rides in the next time, we've, read, we, we've looked at that parade of prisoners earlier in 2 Corinthians. He's going to come back victorious. He's going to have his best outfit on. He's going to have his shiny horse. You know, he's going to be wearing things that look like their armor, but he wouldn't wear them in a fight. Everything's going to be mint. He's going to look so glorious and he's going to come in, and there's no more resistance anymore. You know, after a battle, there's little pockets of resistance here and there. And they, they, even though they won and the white flags were waved, this, this parade doesn't happen the next day. Everything's set up. There's no longer any authority questions. There's no longer any kind of resistance going on. And he rides in, and the new king is in town. That's, what, that's the picture Paul has. So, so you think about Team King that just won... The, the believers of that king, they've won that battle. They've also, most of them, many of them left the city. And then people from the city probably come out because it's a good idea to get on the side now of the people that are running everything. And they would be caught up in that arrival parade and come right back in. People get very tied up in First Thessalonians because they got everybody left hanging in the air forever. Because they hear we're caught up, and then they're with the Lord forever. So they think like they're off this planet and never coming back or whatever. And it's all part of this total victory when Christ comes and his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Even the earth gets a resurrection. And it's permanent and final, and everything's perfect. That's a little bit about this idea of perusia and second coming. So in verses uh, 14 and 15 of that passage we read, that's where I got that idea, where Paul says, we who are alive. I think he really thought he was going straight from point A to C and not having to go through point B. It's amazing that so much of an industry even is built on speculation about this passage. Popular movies, novels, everybody has all these ideas about what this, uh, fleshing it all out about that big day in the future if you go back later and read First Thessalonians, I already mentioned this morning, it's primarily teaching about now. <laughs> that is going to happen. How do you live now? With confidence and accountability, knowing that that day is coming. So, so even the passage itself wasn't meant to be a shiny object that made you thinking only about the future. Paul's uh, teaching uh, in 1 Corinthians is where we get the idea that Jesus is 1.0 of a resurrection body. Um, and then Paul's telling us in the passage we're looking at now that we are in process of that transformation even now. Romans 12.2 talks about our minds being renewed. Ephesians 4.23 says that we're being made new in the attitude. Ephesians 3 talks about strength in our inner being. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we'll get, we, we looked at earlier, talked about the renewal of your inner being of the Spirit. This renewed inner being is something you're taking with you. Something, there won't be anything from this physical body of mine 
that goes with me. But this renewal that's already started in my inner being, that's all part of the end product that we're moving toward that's coming with me. Paul's been realizing and explaining from personal experience that the tools the Holy Spirit uses in that process include suffering. It's not just spiritual retreats and devotional books. It's trials, it's difficulties, it's choices that we make, it's, it's where we invest our time, it's what we're focused on in, the, in this time we have right now. And, and so if we jump right back into our passage and mind Paul's metaphors like we're going to do next week, we're going to need to realize this, the present and the future are not always used as if they're like the first and second periods in a hockey game. Janine and I went to kind of our annual hockey game last night with some friends. And, you know, there's a first period, and then that up's over. And then there's a second period. And the two are kind of separated completely. In, in this teaching in the New Testament, they overlap a little bit. <laughs> because we're already started on that process that will be completed when Christ comes. It's already started now. This changes the transformation. The Holy Spirit's working on our lives now that's part of that next life then. So, so that's important for us to understand that the then and there is connected with the here and now. That's where there's this teaching about judgment day at the end. Again, I'm going to land the plane here. Um, I hope that by the end of next week that you won't think about that judgment day that I read about completely like it's an exam we didn't study for. You know, in high school, here was my program. I don't recommend, this isn't a teaching opportunity on how to study for exams. My program was usually, I'd go to school about two and a half hours before my exam, and that's what I would do, like, most of my studying, in the cafeteria, because it was full of people, and I like that. <laughs> so I'd be there in the cafeteria, and I'd study for a couple hours before my exam. It was a great system. Get there, get those books open, do nothing but think about marketing 1101 or some real tough course like that and I'd focus on that for a couple hours and close my books grab my pen walk in write that exam and forget about it for the rest of my life and then this one morning I went and I got there about nine o'clock for my 1130 exam and it was surprising like guys like Kirby and all these other guys they're all there doing the John Blackman plan I thought this is cool my study system's catching on and I'm sitting there with all my classmates and just before nine they'll close their books up, and they get up to leave. And I go, where are you guys going? They go, for the exam? What? It's at nine. <laughs> so I went and wrote my, good thing it was marketing. But so, you know, all of a sudden, there was the exam I was caught short on. That, that's not judgment day. There's a lot of angst where people are like, well, I wonder when judgment is going to happen. It's going to catch us by surprise. Yeah, you're not going to know when it's happening, but there's something to do now. There are things to do now. There are things that we do now that matter then. That's not the only kind of reaction to Judgment Day that I want you to have. You know, keep your eye on the clock. Uh, last night, we were listening to a podcast as we're driving up to Barrie, and we heard again the quote of this bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. Like, that's not what I want to talk about when I talk about Judgment Day and what's coming. It's not just keep your eye on the clock. It should give you perspective. It should help you understand that the best investments of our time, attention, energy, resources, we looked at this last week with the barn builder, didn't we? Our, our, all of those, our focus won't only be on things that are valuable only in the here and now. But here's the good news. There 
are opportunities now that actually matter then. There are things that we can do now that actually matter then. It's not just a giant waiting period. The prospect of we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us might receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, that should remind us that crime is not the only thing that pays. So does righteousness. So does justice, obedience, faithfulness, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit don't just make life more live, livable now and make us nicer people to be around. They are solid, significant acts that matter for eternity. And your best day has not happened yet. So for homework, read chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 a few more times this week. Write down some questions. Think about all these metaphors like tents and homes and the other comparisons. And how many insights can you collect regarding possible meanings? Just think about the one about tents for a minute. We all know Paul was a tent maker, right? Anybody never heard that Paul had a job as a tent maker on the side? And it's like, but guess what? Paul never imagined a six-man nylon dome tent with zips and vents and LED lights that could fit in a bag this big that a five-year-old could carry and you could put in your basement for when you want to go camping. But what kind of tents did Paul make? How would he have made them? He also never imagined such a thing as a sewing machine. What materials did he use? What were the shortcomings of a tent? Well, why did people use tents in Paul's day? I've, nobody's ever asked me those questions. I don't even know the answers to those ones yet. But as we think, well, how, Paul's comparison, comparing our life to the kind of tents that he made with his bare hands and Hammers and nails, I don't know yet. I got to look it up next week. You do the same. And then how is the new so much better than that old? What were the limitations of that? And what is he talking about a hope for the future? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would um, forgive us at times when we just want way more clarity than you in your wisdom by your spirit even provide. Lord, I pray we would spend more time thinking about the things you do say clearly about the final days than the things that we make up and worry about as we try to fill in the blanks. And Lord, as we look at this passage through the week and speak into again next Sunday, Lord, I pray that we would take the message home that our perspective would be adjusted based on this view. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.